me just turn to Romans and chapter 16. And from verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the, to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Shall we bow together just in a word of prayer? Lord, we want now very simply to commit this evening's study to thee. We know, Lord, that it can be just a lecture, but we pray that we may be delivered from it being only that. We pray, Lord, rather that thou will take thy word and make it live to us, Lord. Give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Cause the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to be enlightened that we may know him in a deeper, clearer, fuller way than ever before. There are all kinds, Lord, of facets of truth that maybe have not come home to us. We pray, Lord, that in thine own wonderful way, thou wilt cause us to see light in thy light. And, O oh Lord, <coughs> let the word of Christ <coughs> dwell in us richly in all wisdom. Grant that there may be a consequence and a result from this evening, for we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now this evening we come to what will be, as far as I can see, uh, the last of these uh, studies on this subject of the mystery of Christ. And as I have said on a number of occasions, this little phrase, the mystery of Christ, does not mean mystery, as is so often understood today in the contemporary use of the word. That is something which we cannot understand or which is not communicated, which is not revealed. But the Bible always uses, with this word, the mystery of Christ or the mystery of God, always uses words such as is manifested, uh, is revealed, <clears throat> is communicated. Um, in other words, the way the Holy Spirit has used this word mystery is of a secret which God communicates to those who are born of his Spirit. And if that really is so, then what a tremendous privilege is ours as born-again believers to really understand what it is that God has hid for generations and ages, but has now revealed to his own in this age. That's tremendously important that you and I should come into an understanding of it. We have, of course, um, a little of it um, 
in Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 4 and 5 and 6, whereby when ye read, ye can perceive my understanding <coughs> in the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men, as it hath now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to wit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. <clears throat> now, we've spent a number of evenings on this matter. We've uh, introduced the subject. We've uh, had one whole evening on what is the mystery of Christ. We have uh, spent another evening on the challenge that is inherent in the revelation of that mystery. And we have now spent two evenings <clears throat> on the subject of its practical relevance to us. We've talked, for instance, of its practical relevance to us on earth, in time, in place, as being the oneness of Christ in action. Because basically the mystery of Christ is union with Christ. That you and I, by the grace of God, <coughs> have been brought into a union with the Lord Jesus. And therefore, because by the grace of God, the Lord Jesus and you and the Lord Jesus and me, we've become one, then something has happened to us. We have not only become members of the Lord Jesus, of Christ, we've become members one of another. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? And so we've spent an evening talking about this oneness, that the middle wall of petition's been destroyed, all the barriers that divide us, whether they're age barriers, sex barriers, denominational barriers, whether they're racial barriers, national barriers, color barriers, social barriers, they've all been abolished. It doesn't mean that we cease to be the nationality that we were born into, or that we, have, we cease to be the sex that we were born uh, with, or that we cease to be the age that we actually are, but rather those causes that divide us, those things that are based in it, that become the cause of bitterness and alienation and division, distance, those things have been abolished in our Lord Jesus and by his finished work. Now, <clears throat> last week, I um, uh, took the matter about it, I entitled it, It Spans the Whole of Time. And we, talk, we talked about that little phrase in the Apostles' Creed, for those of you who have ever known it or recited it, in which we say, I believe in the communion of saints. And we talked about the simple fact that the whole people of God are in Christ. The Bible speaks of the dead in Christ, as well as those of us who are alive on earth as being in Christ. And there is this marvelous union and communion. It doesn't mean, of course, we become spiritists. <coughs> we get messages from those who are dead, or that um, we are to contact them in any way. That's forbidden. But what we do know is that we are a in a glorious unity. The, this mystery of Christ, this church of Christ, this body of the Lord Jesus, is not something uh, <coughs> which is just uh, uh, located in a particular period of time, but covers the whole of time. And not only those in this under the new covenant, but goes right back to the beginning, to Abraham and even before. 
That's rather wonderful, isn't it? Now, I won't say any more about those matters. What I want to talk about this evening, and I, if I can, if we have the time and the Lord gives me the grace to be lucid and concise, um, I'd like to take two matters uh, this evening, both of which are vital. Now, I re they really are vital. Uh, we can talk till we're blue in the face um, about being the church of Jesus Christ. We can talk uh, endlessly about being the body of the Lord Jesus. But in the end, it is not theology that counts. In the final analysis, it is whether the Holy Spirit commits himself. And you can have all the Bible pattern in the world. You can have the most biblical pattern. You can have a New Testament pattern. But if the Holy Spirit does not commit himself, it never becomes a living, organic, viable uh, uh, unity. It never becomes an organism. It never becomes something which is alive in God. Uh, growing in God, functioning by the power of God, uh, achieving the ends of God. It, it, it cannot be unless the Holy Spirit uh, commits himself. Therefore, these matters we're talking about are not just um, uh, interesting theories, interesting ideals. They are, in fact, absolutely essential. The oneness of the Lord Jesus, unless we all learn how to maintain the unity of the Spirit, there will be no body of the Lord Jesus to function. And if we make the ground of fellowship less than Christ, we cut out some who for one reason or another, we feel do not see eye to eye with us, although they're in Christ, immediately we have destroyed any effective building up of the church. If, on the other hand, we add more than Christ, we do exactly the same. So these things are very important. Now, what I'd like to take up, the first matter this evening, is this. <clears throat> the local nature of its expression. We talked about <clears throat> the fact that <clears throat> this is a unity. It is the same unity as exists between the Father and the Son. Jesus said, I pray for them that they may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may be in us. That's not an organized unity. It is not a structural unity. It is an organic unity. No one has ever been able to define the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is an organic, essential, substantial unity. And it is into that unity that you and I are born by the Spirit of God. Now, this unity has and must have a local expression. <laughs> In other words, let's look at this a little more. It sounds terribly technical to begin with. This church of God, this union with Christ, this body of which he is the head. This temple of the Lord. Um, this uh, house, home of God in the spirit has got to have a local expression. It has to be expressed in time, on earth, and in a given place. For instance, if you will turn 
um, to uh, Colossians and chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2, we read this. Now, of course, I am dependent upon the fact that you've been following these studies so that you'll understand what we're talking about. But listen to this. For I would have you know how greatly I strive for you and for them at Laodicea, Colossae and Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts may be comforted, they being knit together in love and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding that they may know the mystery of God, even Christ. So the apostle's great concern is not that this be some mystical, ethereal, abstract, ideal, or truth. That is very wonderful, a form of escapism. It helps us above the sort of normal humdrum routine. But his great concern is that the people of God at Colossae and the people of God at Laodicea might really come right into this and know the mystery of God in experience. Know the Lord Jesus. Know him not only personally, but know him corporately. It's got to be expressed, this union with the Lord Jesus, in time and in place. Now this glorious and divine oneness with Christ has got to be expressed, let me put it this way, where we live and when we live on this earth. Why do I say that? First of all, where we live, that's obvious. <laughs> I mean, it's all very well to talk about some wonderful communion of saints, some invisible church, the body of the Lord Jesus comprising of all, comprised of all truly born-again believers. But the, in the final analysis, it has to be expressed. It can just be a marvelous escapist theory. Up there, everything's one. Up there, everything's without spot or blemish. Up there, everything is perfect. It's got to come down to where we live. I can't talk about being the church or belonging to the Lord Jesus if, in fact, I am in collision with my Christian brothers and sisters in the place where I live. That's where it's put to the test. And then you get this other idea that this whole mystery of Christ is something really all to do with the, with the ages to come. When we've died, or when the Lord has come, and we're changed in the twinkling of an eye, then this whole thing will be a marvelous reality. Well, that is true. It will be a manifested reality, a publicly manifested reality. But the work that ensures that you and I are in it has to be done now, here, in time and in given place. In other words, it has to be done where we live and when we live, uh, with the exception of the names of God and of Christ, no other name 
is ever associated with the church of God or with churches in the New Testament other than the name of the locality in which they are found. Now that is, an ink, that is a, a statement that you just, is so true that of course uh, we all just accept it. But you see, we, it's not true today. We find any number of things. Lutheran churches, Anglican churches, Methodist churches, Congregational churches, Mennonite churches, uh, all kinds of things, different names, different personalities. Sometimes uh, a name of some great leader is attached to it. Sometimes it's the name of a particular teaching that is like a holiness church or a Pentecostal church or something else well, is attached to it. But in the New Testament, you never find anything like this. You never find anything about a Pentecostal church in Colossae or a holiness church in Antioch or uh, a Petrine church in Corinth or an Apollonian church in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, it's interesting because when you really begin to look at the Bible, you find there's only names of the locality given to the place. For instance, take Revelation and chapter 1 and verse um, 11. Jesus is speaking, saying, What thou seest, write in a book and send it to seven churches. And this is how he describes them. Unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamum, unto Tharatara, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Now if you turn back in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1 and verse 1, we read this. Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy unto the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful description. The church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're there, of course, because of the person of the Holy Spirit. Now then again, look at Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. Galatians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, neither through man, but through Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't seem to be right. This is verse 2. Um, uh, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren that are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace. Or again, look at Philippians chapter 1. Now, here we have a slight change, but it's a very interesting change. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus that are at Philippi. It's another way of saying the church at Philippi. All the saints that are at Philippi. And someone says, oh, how can you say that? Listen, with the bishops and deacons. In other words, it's a term synonymous with church. The church at Philippi. With the bishops, that is the elders, and deacons, the overseers, the presbyters. Now again, take another scripture if you want it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ with the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, even them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in every place, their Lord and ours. That is a marvelous little formula, isn't it? 
the church of God which is at Corinth, even those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in every place, every locality, their Lord and ours. Do you want some more scriptures? Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Because someone will immediately now say, but just wait, you're talking, I mean, that's the New Testament. Those churches weren't so large. Just wait. Some of those churches were extremely large, even by modern standards. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, middle part of the verse, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. Now the church at Jerusalem numbered 3,000 um, born-again believers on the day of Pentecost. Within a few days, within a week, it had come to number 5,000. Within a few more weeks, it had numbered a few more thousand. Now, of course, we must understand that some went back home, but even if it was only a church consisting of three or 4,000 believers, there was no meeting place in Jerusalem large enough to contain them all. And that is why they met in Solomon's porches in the temple uh, uh, precincts for prayer and worship and broke bread in homes. And it's a marvelous little comment is made in one place about Peter and James that when they were freed, they went to their own company. And I find that very interesting. Here are the apostles that got their own company. <laughs> Not meaning their own church, but their own house group. And when they were freed from prison, they went immediately to their own and they found them praying. It's so interesting when you begin to see it. You see, these are things we don't, we, we overlook. You may not quite see the point at present, but I trust in a moment uh, you will. Um, Acts 2.46, you needn't look it up, but that's the one that says about the meeting in the temple every day for, for prayer and for praise, and also says they broke bread from home to home. And uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 23 uh, is where they went to their own company. Uh, when they were freed. And then we have one other very interesting little scripture, which I've often um, pondered uh, uh, over. Titus chapter 1, Titus, if you can find it, chapter 1 and verse 5. Listen to this. For this cause I left thee, that is Titus, in Crete, that thou shouldst ordain elders, listen, in every city. Now, isn't that interesting? Not in every church, in every city. So it is perfectly clear from the book, from the New Testament, that really the only name that was ever associated with a church was the name of its locality. And furthermore, in God's eyes, the church consisted of every born-again believer living or resident within that locality. In other words... There was only one church, but it was, only, it was divided by where you lived. When the Apostle Paul was in Antioch, he was in the church at Antioch. When he was in Jerusalem, he was in the church in Jerusalem. He wasn't a member of the church at Antioch in Jerusalem as a visitor. It was only one family. You understand? When you begin to see it like that, it changes. You see, the practice of years has so befuddled our thinking on this whole matter of the church that somehow or other we can only see it through our own experience in these last centuries. 
But when we get back to the simple, original truth, we make some amazing discoveries. What is the truth of this matter? It is that there is only one church, only one body of the Lord Jesus, uniting all born-again believers into one, whether in heaven or on earth or wherever we live at the same time. And this oneness must be expressed in time and in place. Indeed, all the work connected with the eternal church, without being part of the bride of Christ, without being prepared as the city of God for all eternity, has to be done in time on earth through the church on earth. How then do we express this one church? Now think for a moment. We, if we express it racially, we shall have a racial divi racially divided church. We shall have a color bar. We shall have a black church, a white church, a yellow church. No, the Bible says no. Shall we divide by nationality? Then we shall have an English church, a Norwegian church, a Swedish church, a German church, a Japanese church, and so on. No. We won't do that. Shall we divide it by social barriers? Then we'll have an upper-class church in one town and a lower-class church in the town. We'll have those who will go to the Salvation Army and those that will go along to the parish church. Those who like something a little more uh, sort of uh, rumbustious and uh, a bit more music-hallish in a way and those who like something uh, with uh, rather more classical music. Uh, sort of... We divide it by class. No, we can't do that. Well, then, uh, shall we divide it by theological uh, emphasis or Christian personalities? If we do, we get denominational churches. That's exactly what they did in Corinth. Not the leaders, but the people. And they were divided. Some said, I'm of Apollos. Others said, I'm of Kephas. And others said, I'm of Paul. And there was a group who called themselves the exclusives. So they said, we're of Christ. We, don't, we exclude all the others. And have anything to do with them. They're just fleshly. But the Apostle Paul said, is Christ divided? He cannot be divided. There's only one Christ. And it doesn't matter if you say you're of Paul, you're still in the one Christ who's bigger than those who say I'm of Paul. And those who say I'm of Apollos, he's bigger than those, than that group. It includes those of Paul and includes those of Peter as well as the exclusives. There's only one way, if you think for a moment, in which you can divide the church and not do it along nat naturally divisive lines, and that is locality. Because immediately you divide the church by where we live, in the area, the municipality, the, uh, the uh, locality, whatever you like to call it, the city, the town in which we live, immediately we're all one. It's not a question of being Chinese, Japanese, English, Swedish, Finnish, Russian. It's a question that you're in Christ. If you're here in Richmond, you're in the church here in Richmond. If you're in Moscow, you'll be in the church in Moscow. And if you're in uh, Tokyo, you'll be in the church in Tokyo. Now, of course, there must be problems here because we have huge urban areas such as New York, such as Los Angeles, such as London, uh, such as Tokyo, such as Shanghai. What shall we do? And I, long ago, this matter was faced by some brethren, and they said, I think quite rightly, the best thing to do is to take the municipal areas within a city and make them separate entities. There's really no other way in which we can. But without being legalistic, 
This matter is very important because they're the only foundation for the practical gathering together and building up of the church is Christ. It isn't a geographical locality. It's Christ. But then we must say it is Christ as he is found in the locality in which I live. Otherwise, I run right across London to a company I like. That's not good enough. It means I'm not facing up to the issues in my life. There's someone in that company I can't bear. So I'd much prefer to run off to Richmond. Where I'm not really known. Where I can sit in peace. But you're not facing up to the reality. It's all very well for us to have draped across our platforms all one in Christ Jesus when we're not at all one. We're at each other's throats, scratching out each other's eyes. We can't sit together. We can't worship together. We can't take communion together. So we have to run off elsewhere. That's not good enough. And God traps us into the area where we live. And then we have to face up to the whole problems that are within us. You see, dear child of God, you may get very upset about this, but in the end you'll have to come to it. The real problem is not others, it's you. The real problem is not others, it's me. I can often say, if I didn't have those, I'd be a marvelous saint. But God says, oh no. If you were a marvelous saint, you would reveal it in your attitude to those difficult people. They are the means that by which saints are made. Run away from it, and you lose all possibility of being conformed to the image of God's Son. You run into that awful realm, which is so common in evangelical circles, where we learn and learn and learn and learn and learn and never arrive. So this matter is no small matter. Are you in Christ? Then you must find your brothers and sisters in Christ where you live and be built up with them. Upon that foundation alone, the Spirit of God begins to build living stone together with living stone. Not the ones we like, but the ones ordained by God for us. And he knits member to member. Very simple, really, the way he does it. The Spirit there puts everything to the acid test. Training us, disciplining us, educating us, qualifying us. For instance, you say that you have love in your heart for the Lord. And then you must say at times, well, I love God's people. But the acid test is whether you can really work together with others in a team and with people who rub you up the wrong way then we shall know whether the love of God is really in your heart or whether it's sentimentality. Whether you want a social club where people like you and you like them or whether really you mean business with God and want to be really conformed to the image of God's Son. We can talk about being behind evangelization schemes. We can sort of say, I pray for missionaries on the other side, of the, but when it comes to going out on a Sunday evening into the streets, we're never found there. When it comes even to our presence in a time that is directed towards us, we're never there. 
We can talk till we're blue in the face about our great missionary burden. But unless in the acid test of the local, it seemed to be a genuine burden for other human beings, it's hogwash. If a person cannot even give themselves in prayer for evangelistic endeavor, what's the point of their saying that they support missionaries somewhere else in some other part of the earth? In the end, this whole thing comes down in the final analysis to the way we come through where we live Now, this matter of living within the locality is then of vital importance. Don't compromise over it. Don't allow the pressure of circumstances uh, to influence you into compromise. I've seen it again and again. It, it, you, you young married ones, you'll find it a thousand times easier to get a place just outside the area than within it. The devil will make sure about that. And then we'll come and say, well, what can we do? Don't we need a home? Of course. But you see, no one ever thinks of the problems. Different in some places where every member of the family has a car in some parts of the earth. <laughs> but what happens when you have a family? How do you really get in for fellowship? Wives are cut off. It's very well to talk about this in sentiment and say, well, you know, we can get there very easily. We can do this. We're on the bus route. And then what happens when we have an energy crisis? Nothing runs. We are moving into the period of what the Bible calls in Matthew 24, famines. Most people have always thought of these famines as being shortages of food. They've never realized that it's just famine. Shortages. Shortages of petrol. Shortages of other raw goods. All kinds of things. We're moving into that era. So this matter of where we live is very important. And don't compromise. Or you may find that because you compromised on something which you knew to be true, you're caught when the crisis comes. <laughs> and then the excuses you made will mock you. The devil will see to that. God never communicates truth to be compromised. He communicates truth to be obeyed in faith. And I have never known anyone who has responded to light given to them in, in faith, with the obedience of faith, who's lived to regret it. Every time I hear again and again later people say, thank God I did that. At the time I had such a battle, but thank God I, now I understand it. Isn't it amazing I did this and this, and now see what's happened. I trust that what I say really does find a home in your heart because in times of national or international crisis or strife, the emergencies which we are beginning to experience, as well as war, 
It is a very important thing that we be found within the kind of area where the saints live so that we can contact one another, if, by ne if, if necessary, by walking round. Supposing in the end the Third World War does come. What about folks that are right out, far away? They've never got to know the saints there. They've never been. And now what do we do? We can't walk to them. We can't cycle round. But if they're within the area, somewhere there will be people who are near enough just to, to pop and see that so-and-so's all right. This whole matter is not so stupid as it may seem. It's not something to be played about with. You have been given some years of grace. And so in these years of grace, we need to wake up and not be foolish virgins who suddenly, when the moment comes, say, oh, oh, and rush off and say, please help us now to do something. We won't be able to do anything when the crisis comes. Everyone will be busy looking after their own families. So don't take this matter lightly. The mystery of Christ has to be experienced and expressed locally. It is there that the real work is done whereby we practically experience what it is to be fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers. There we discover the reality of it. And by the grace of God, we overcome. Now I'd like to go on to another matter. Um, which is also just as important, in fact, in many ways, I would say, is even more important. And it is this. It is the vehicle for the headship of Christ to be expressed, known and expressed. If you like the word experienced and expressed. The mystery of Christ is that we have been made fellow members of the body of which he is the head. In practical terms, therefore, it is the headship of Christ in powerful, actual, and concrete action. Did you get that? In practical terms, this union with Christ functions, grows, is fulfilled. The purpose of God realized through it. Through the headship of Jesus Christ. His authority is not a theory or an ideal, but is to be experienced in practical terms. The body of Christ, the church, has only one head. Now, I think we all know that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it says that he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, which is the church, that in all things he might have the preeminence. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, it says, subjecting all things under his feet and gave him, that is Jesus, to be head over everything to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Only one head. 
through the person of the Holy Spirit, the authority of Christ, his mind, his will, his thoughts, is to be practically communicated to the church. Practically communicated. You see, this is the whole, the whole crux of the matter. The, the, the tragedy of church history is that every single movement of the Holy Spirit right from the day of Pentecost, right the way through, through the long story of the church, has been that when the Holy Spirit has moved, there have been men and women who have owned the headship and lordship of Jesus Christ alone. On that day of Pentecost, suddenly 120 units of a congregation became 120 members of a body. And when Peter stood up to speak, the 11 stood up automatically with him. And he was their mouthpiece. No more rivalry. They weren't saying, who is the greatest? Who has the anointing? Why shouldn't I, John, speak? Why shouldn't I, James, speak? Why should he speak? Wasn't he the one who denied the Lord three times with oaths and curses? No, they became a body. It didn't bother them anymore. As long as it was the Lord speaking, they didn't mind their mouth being shut. If he spoke, they were speaking. It was, he was their mouth. They were members of a body. For the first time, they felt, we're in this together. We don't mind whom God uses so long as he does the work. Uh, it is so every other time in church history in the Reformation, in the Puritan period, and later on in the Quakers, and later on in the Methodists, and later on in the Great Brethren movement, and then the Pentecostal movement, all the way through church history it's been the same, that whenever the Spirit of God has moved, one of the evidences of it have been men and women who have owned absolutely without reservation or condition the Lordship of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has communicated the mind of the risen head to his body. And then something has happened. And every single time the headship of Jesus Christ has been substituted by man or men, a council of men, one man, or two or three men, then immediately the whole thing is crystallized and died. You can dress it up in biblical terms and make it sound very, very correct. But if a man, even if it's a Bible pattern, puts his head in the place of the Lord Jesus, the church is effectively paralyzed. There is no more growth, no more function, and no more movement. But as soon as that substitutes out of the way, and the Lord Jesus can speak, and his people hear and obey, immediately it's renewal. It is often considered mystical, impractical. In fact, they consider it impossible that the Lord Jesus could direct the church on earth. They say that, don't be silly, God's given us common sense. How can the Lord Jesus direct the church on earth? Well, then what does the Bible mean? What does it mean when it says again and again and again and again that he's head of the church? Is it just an ideal? 
Is he just a figurehead like the Queen? A constitutional monarch? We write their speeches for them. We pass the laws, but they have to sign them. They're just a figurehead. It's us who are doing it all, really. We're speaking, we're acting, we're working, we're enacting the laws and regulations, but we use their name, the stamp of their authority. Is that what the church is? Or does it really mean in the book when it says that Jesus is head, that he is practically head, that there is a mind of God in him. There is the will of God in him. There are the thoughts of God in him. There is the word of God in him. And therefore it has to be communicated to us for obedience. I don't understand this talk of it being mystical. Impossible, impractical. It goes to the very root of the gospel. If it is mystical, impractical, or impossible, then let's give up. What was the church on the day of Pentecost? It turned Jerusalem upside down. Why? Because the risen head was directing it <coughs> to the Holy Spirit. Then Judea, then Samaria, then through to the uttermost parts of the earth. Even Rome crumbles into the dust. And that despised movement of the Spirit of God spreads throughout the whole Roman Empire until in the end the Roman Empire is a shadow of history. But the church is with us today. Now, my point is this. It doesn't matter whether it's a man or a collection of men who substitute the headship of Christ for their own. Whoever does it destroys in the end the growth, the function, and the fulfillment of the church. Now, I don't upset anybody, but let me just go over the whole gamut. It can be popes. It can be cardinals. It can be archbishops. It can be bishops. It can be synods. It can be moderators. It can be pastors or vicars. It can be elders or deacons. It can be dictatorship or autocracy. One man holding everything in his hands and commanding the whole hierarchy. Or it can be democracy and congregational business meetings based virtually on a common opinion of the majority without any regard to what the mind of God might be in a given situation. It can be something totally unbiblical, un-New Testament, or it can be a New Testament pattern so polished and so perfect that it is impossible to fault. But whatever it is, if it puts its head in the place of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is sinful. Oh, that's terribly strong, right? Yes. I say it is sinful because anything which paralyzes the building work of the Lord Jesus is sinful. Thank God if a pope gets on his knees and gets his direction from God. You know, something could happen in the Catholic Church which will go right through the Holy And something is happening to the shock of many evangelicals. Our present pope I have myself no doubt is a real believer born of God 
And when the, the group, the Living Sound, came to Krakow in Poland, he personally introduced them, giving his testimony when he was archbishop. You can get a sound Baptist pastor who puts his head in the place of the Lord or a bunch of born-again deacons who put their heads in the place of the Lord Jesus and effectively destroy the function, the church's growth and function. You could conceivably have a pope or a cardinal or an archbishop who so bowed before the Lord that the Lord for the first time could find a way right through them to renew and quicken and start something moving that would have untold consequences. It is the church's responsibility to be subject to its head. In Ephesians chapter 5, it puts it very simply. I think most of you will know it very well, but maybe you've never actually noticed it in this connection. In chapter 5 of Ephesians and verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be also subject to their husbands. Well, for one moment, you can forget the last part about wives being subject to their husbands, although, of course, it's absolutely right. But just get this first part clear. Listen to this. As the church is subject to Christ. It is the responsibility of the church to be subject to its Lord, to its head. The Holy Spirit has come in order to make that a powerful and practical reality. I, I think the person of the Holy Spirit is so wonderful in this matter he waits and he waits and he waits for the opportunity to make a powerful, dynamic reality the headship of Jesus. There are so few places where the Holy Spirit is able to do this. That when the opportunity is given to the Holy Spirit, if I may be so irreverent as to say, he almost falls over himself to communicate the mind of the Lord Jesus. I want you just to consider a few scriptures. Very thing, if you'll take the book and look at these. You, you'll know them, I think, most of you. But have you ever thought of them in this connection? Listen to this in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16. Now, this is all about the body of Jesus. Now, listen to this. But speaking truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom all the body, fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplies, and so on. Now, I want you just to underline this. Listen, you know it so well. Growing up into him as head, even Christ, from whom all the body, how can we know the body functioning? How can we know the maintenance of the oneness of the body? How can we possibly know the realization of the purpose of God through the body unless we grow up into him as head? What does it mean, growing up 
into him as head. I think that's a most fascinating phrase. It doesn't say um, recognize him as head. That's true, that's initial. It doesn't say confess him as head, as Lord. That's absolutely foundational. It says grow up into him. As head. It seems to suggest that we, as members of the Lord Jesus, together in Christ, in a locality, should grow up together into him as head. Finding out what it is to know the mind of the Lord together, how to read the mind of the Lord, how to sense the mind of the Lord, and how to obey the mind. When we begin to grow up into him as head, when we get our relationship with him clear, then we can get our relationship with one another clear. As I grow up into him as head, I find the body. From whom all the body? So often in these movements to do with what I call church-type movements or New Testament pattern movements, they've got hold of a New Testament pattern and they want to try and put it into operation. You'll find again and again they go at it on the horizontal. Eh? Let's find the body. Let's get the members. Let's get everybody together. Let's set up the church. Now we'll have the Lord's table and then we'll have elders and deacons. Um, we'll sort out a few for elders and we'll sort out a few for deacons. And uh, you know, it's this kind of way of doing it. Oh, on the horizontal. God doesn't do it that way. He does it the vertical. We only know the body growing, functioning, every part supplying something as we grow up into him as head. There's a process. There, there is a progressive experience. Uh, there is somehow is somewhere in which we've got to find one another in him. Now, quickly, let's go on to another scripture. Uh, in this matter. Uh, for instance, uh, take Colossians chapter 2 and verse 19, another very well-known phrase. This time it's put in the negative way. And not holding fast the head, from whom all the body, being supplied and knit together to the joints and bands, increaseth with the increase of God. Now, this is interesting. Holding fast the head, from whom... All the body. So the first thing is growing up into the head, even Christ. And here is another holding fast the head from the whom the whole body. You try to hold fast to your brothers and sisters and you'll lose them. What will happen will be this. If you don't lose them, they will all be lost together. I could never believe that that movement of God, the Brethren movement, which was really in its beginning so remarkable, and then the exclusive movement, which had such depth, even though I don't personally agree with his exclusivism at all, should have ended up the way it has. Could you believe that a whole group could move together, holding together, Away and away and away and away from the head. As they held to one another and all watched one another and all saw that one another, you know, is, is it the party line? Are we doing the right thing? So they all moved away. The children of God have done the same thing. What began as a real work of God has veered away and away and away until now we hear their leaders talking about Gaddafi, 
as a prophet of God. It's incredible, isn't it? And we say, well, how could this happen? These are groups that saw something. That, 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 that. Yes, they went on the vertical. Uh, they went on the horizontal, not the vertical. They didn't grow up into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom all the body. They didn't hold fast the head from whom the whole body. But they tried to find the body first. And then they tried to hold the body. Tried to set up something. And so went off the rails. Now, what does this mean? How do you grow up into him who is the head, even Christ? How do you hold fast the head and find the body? How do I experience this? Our problem, may I just say it very simply, is often, so often centered on how far we should identify divine authority with human authority. Isn't that our problem? Now, you've got what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to say is this. We can all say, oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I accept the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But it's when somehow or other the elders say something. Oh, I've got my problem. Didn't like that. Now I can say, well, I don't accept that. That wasn't the Lord. So what do we do? Isn't our problem is how far we identify divine authority with the human vessel? Now, I think there are some tragedies in the country and in the world at large on this matter. We have whole hierarchical systems that have been built. We've got this pyramid kind of system. We've got this insistence on people covenanting, obeying, submitting. But we must be very careful we don't go to the other extreme and, as we say, throw out the baby with the bathwater. There are, there is some truth, isn't there? For instance, let me give you a problem. Take Hebrews and chapter 13 and verse 17. I think some of you know it. Listen, you can't get away from this. Obey them that have the rule over you. Well, you can't get away from that, can you? Now, would you please notice this phrase first, have the rule over you. Now, that's a rather authoritarian type of phrase, isn't it? Have the rule. So, there are people who have the rule over you. Oh, dear. I wish you hadn't said that. Everything was lovely in this Bible study up to now. I mean, we don't mind sort of recognizing Jesus as Lord, as head, but uh, I want to decide what the head say. I want to determine. What does it mean? Have the rule over you. Or you say, well, maybe it's only one place. Never built a doctrine on one place. Just wait. <laughs> Verse 7. Remember them that had the rule over you. Men that spake unto you the word of God, and considering the issue of their life, imitate their faith. Oh, so second. Oh, just wait, just in case you think you can get away with it. Verse 24. Salute all them that have the rule over you. Oh, dear. It's like the needles got stuck. Have the rule over you three times in one portion. I mean, it can't be a mistake, can it? Well, somehow or other, the Holy Spirit's trying to say something. Then there are people who have the rule over you. Now, will you notice, having got that clear, the second thing. Obey. Oh, dear, that's a very authoritarian type of word. Don't like that. Understand. It's a nicer word. 
cogitate on those who have the rule over you. I don't like that word obey, but think about it. And here is the third thing. Uh, just in case we get a kind of slavish idea of this authority. Consider, it says, considering the issue of their life, imitate their faith. Remember, consider, imitate. In other words, those who have the rule over you should at least have a little more of the Lord. Something to remember, something to consider, something to imitate. It's not just dictatorship. <coughs> there is some spiritual seniority. Now, there are some other scriptures, but we really haven't got too much time. But if you want to just quickly take note of them, even if we can't read them all, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. Listen to this. But we beseech you, brethren, to know them that labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Oh, that's time or kindly put. This is the Apostle Paul. I am not at all myself convinced that the writer of the, of the Hebrew letter was the Apostle Paul. But here is the Apostle Paul, always more gentle in his ways. He, he doesn't say, have the rule over you. But he says, them that are over you in the Lord. Just a little more gently. But it still is them that are over you. Now, uh, um, would you notice again what it says? Uh, we beseech you, brethren, to know them that labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Oh, they admonish you. Oh, we don't always like that either, do we? Oh, you know, sometimes we get very upset that the brothers never say anything to us. <laughs> but if they were always admonishing us, I don't think we'd like that. Admonishing. Something else to think about, isn't it? Now, what about 1 Corinthians chapter 16? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Now, I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Archaia, that they have set themselves to minister unto the saints, that ye also be in subjection unto such, and to everyone that helpeth in the work and laboreth. Ho, ho! You mean? Not only the elders, but everyone that uh, laboreth in, uh, that helpeth in the work and laboreth. Oh dear, I can see trouble, problems, a bit of discipline here. In, I don't like that word, in subjection. That's not a nice word. In subjection. Mind you, it does say that these people minister unto the saints, which is beautiful. In other places, it says they, wa they washed their feet. Lovely. But we have to be in subjection <coughs> to such. Oh dear, you mean everyone who's got responsibility in the work that we should, uh, we should, um, uh, yes. Oh dear. Now I can understand what you mean about this problem. Divine authority in the human vessel. See, I don't mind being under the government of the Lord so long as I can determine what the government of the Lord is. But if someone's going to tell me, would you do this, or you didn't do that right, I don't like that. Now, I have another look at another scripture. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. 
I'm sorry, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, from verse 1 to 5. The elders therefore among you I exhort, who am a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, who am also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, tend the flock of God that which is among you, exercising the oversight. Not, I like that word, oversight. It, it somehow speaks of the whole flock functioning, doesn't it, itself. But there are those who have an oversight. They have a, an overall view, watching the whole. It's not that they do all the work, it's rather that they watch over the functioning of the whole. Get it? And then it goes on, not of constraint, but willingly, according to the will of God, nor yet for filthy lucre, that's uh, because they get a nice pay packet, but of a ready mind, neither does lording it over the flock, over the charge allotted to you, but making yourselves ensamples to the flock. What is, isn't the word of God wonderful? Because it keeps us from all these excesses we see in church history and on the contemporary scene. I see men sometimes lording it over the flock, you know, building whole empires. Everyone, you know, has got to do exactly what they're told. I don't know whether it's really right. There is a place for those who have the rule over us. And I've only talked about elders, deacons, and those in the work. I want to come to something else. What about apostolic authority? Oh, dear. Well, there is such a thing as apostolic authority. And you listen to what the um, apostle says. If you want to, uh, find it in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Quickly. Uh, use these last moments. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 8. Although I should glory somewhat abundantly concerning our authority, oh, which the Lord gave for your building you up and not for casting you down. Oh dear, what is the Apostle Paul talking about? Authority given to us, not to cast you down, but to build you up. He says it again in chapter 13 and verse, uh, uh, just wait, 13 verse 10. For this cause I write these things while absent, that I may not, when present, deal sharply according to the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for casting down. Oh, so there's apostolic authority. Oh, dear. <laughs> that means that there is such a thing as apostolic authority. It means that a man with much wider responsibility and authority than a local church can, in fact, say something to a local church. Now, the interesting thing is this, that those churches had the freedom to turn away. And they did. So we have to get this quite clear. It was no hierarchical system where a, an apostle could turn them all out of the building or, or whatever, anything like that, you know, sort of. No, no, there was some kind of wonderful... You see, you can't exercise authority unless people give you authority. Very true. You cannot exercise authority unless people give you The rest becomes a slavish dictatorship out of which all life and love depart. Now, I want you to note one wonderful little thing that has always been a great deliverance to me. And it's in Ephesians and chapter 2, and again, very well-known verses, but people never tend to suddenly realize what it's saying. In, in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, being built 
upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Oh, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Now, here is something I find just wonderful. Because this kind of idea of authority has always got the pyramid this way. And you've got the big men, the top brass, right on the top. Sitting there. And then down you come from apostles to prophets. And then you come to elders, deacons. And then all the poor flock squashed underneath. They have to obey what comes from above. I don't find it in the book. I find the whole thing inverted. I find that the apostles and prophets are a foundation upon, the, upon which the whole solid weight of the building rests. What pressure. What burdens. Ah, that's a different thing. Years ago, when Norman Grubb came back from the Far East, and I, it was the first time I ever had a long talk with him. I remember him saying in how enthralled he was with what he found in the Far East and in India. I listened, enraptured. We had been so ostracized for so many years that the very fact that he wanted to talk with us was, I thought, so lovely. And, of course, I came to the Lord through the book he wrote. So naturally, I felt I doubly owed something to him. But I was so thrilled to hear him talking in rapturous terms about what he'd seen. It was, he said, the church in action. But then, typical of Parvubi, he suddenly sort of stopped and coughed and, and said, um, but he said, I am not sure that there is not a fatal so I looked at him aghast and said, fatal weakness? What do you mean? He said, the view of authority. Oh, no, I said, oh, well, he said, I may be wrong, I may be wrong. <laughs> oh, I, I said, I think you are. I said, oh, no, I'm sure that's right. I mean, we live in these days of anarchy and laws. Well, he said, as I see it, he said, I think there is such a delicate balance between the people of God and those who have this kind of apostolic authority. He was right. He was right. It was the fatal flaw. And what has happened to that movement is because there was a fatal flaw in the concept of authority. We're seeing the same thing now because people never learn. You know, Mark Twain, as I've often told you, said, we learn from history that we never learn from history. We are doomed to make the same historic mistakes again and again because we never learn. It's a shame. To me, you see, this whole matter of authority is being as our Lord Jesus put it so beautifully in Mark and chapter 10 and verse 42. Jesus called to them and said unto them, Ye know that they who are accounted to rule over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But that is, but it is not so among you. But whosoever would become great among you let shall be your minister, bond slave, that is a hired servant, 
And whosoever would be first among you shall be bondslave of all. That is, no time off. For the Son of Man also came, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, come, we must, we must end this. You see, a very necessary part of our training, of our education, and of our discipline, that we might reign with Christ in the ages to come, be part of his eternal government, come to sit with him in the throne, that we may share in his uh, administration. A very large and necessary part of that training, of that discipline, of that education is involved with our relationship to those who have the rule over us, who have responsibility for us. On the other hand, lest we get a wrong idea, an unbalanced picture, a top-heavy view of authority, we should consider scriptures like Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 which I feel are a tremendous corrective to a wrong idea of authority. Ephesians 5, verse 21, subjecting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. I think that's beautiful. It says, be filled with the Spirit. And then it says, subjecting yourselves one to another. What does it mean, subjecting yourselves? Doesn't it mean that we as a, if we're members of a body, how can we act as if there is no body? Oh, but you say, well, I, I, I wouldn't act as if there's nobody. Oh, yes, you would. <coughs> I do the same. It's the natural thing. Those are my little fingers, said. I'm off to Timbuktu. You off to Timbuktu? How can you? You're in the body. Don't you feel any relationship to the rest? Maybe you should go to Timbuktu, but don't you think that at least you should share it? You know, it's amazing. I, I, I've never, I never failed to be amazed. People suddenly come and announce, we're moving to the Isle of Wight next week. <laughs> moving to the Isle of Wight next week. Oh, really? Yes, the Lord's um, uh, ranged it all. Oh, it's very strange, isn't it? Living stones were supposed to be built together and suddenly one living stone goes out, off. <coughs> Members knit together, functioning, for, uh, growing up into Christ who was the head, and suddenly we discover they've gone. It's very odd. It's not that the church wants to dictate, but surely there should be some sense inside subjecting yourselves one to another. In the end, isn't it for your security? If the church is wise, it will never direct you. But you know, we change homes. We change jobs. We do all kinds of things. We, we don't feel any need to. Why? Why? We've got far more important matters to pray. Yes. But supposing we all did, don't you think the enemy could say, help you there, you there, you there. Before long, you don't know, there is no more building. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. I like that word, the fear of Christ, in the reverence of Christ, in the fear of the Lordship of Christ. In other words, don't be so big-headed to think that you have necessarily got dogmatically the mind of God for you. 
for your security. Open up to the family. It's all part of growing up into him who is the head, from whom all the body fitly framed. We belong to one another. We can't just say farewell to one another like that. There's some kind of relationship, isn't there? And you, you see, you find it in all kinds of things. If you want to look at it, there's Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, which says it this way. It says, doing nothing through faction or through vain glory, but in loneliness of mind, each counting other better than himself. Your old version says esteeming others better than yourself. You see, the, the feeling is, don't despise your brothers and sisters. Esteem them as having at least something of the Lord. More of the Lord than you. And, and, and go on the basis that they love you. And shall I tell you something? Now and again, well, I found in the past, I was so afraid to sort of ask about something because you felt, oh, so-and-so is bound to manipulate. So-and-so's got cast-iron views. They won't agree with that. And then when finally you get through and you open it and just say, what? You find your amazement. That people treat you very, very sensitively. It seems that if you trust your brothers and sisters, they trust you. And when you distrust them, they distrust you. I often think it's the same with the Lord. It says, with the froward, he's froward. <laughs> Remember? So I think this is a very important thing. Look at another scripture, Galatians 5 and verse 13. For ye, brethren, were called for freedom, only use not your freedom for an occasion to the flesh, but through love be servants one of another. Isn't it the same thought all over again? And then 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll bring this now to a finish. Chapter 5, verse 5, Likewise ye younger, be subject unto the elder. Now listen to this. Yea, all of you, gird yourselves with humility to serve one another. For God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Now, we could say a lot more about all this matter. There are times when apostles should submit to the church. There are times when elders should submit to the church. It's all part of growing up into him who is the head. You see, God doesn't always automatically reveal his mind to those who are apostles or those who are elders. Sometimes it comes to the simplest, humblest members of the body. And when we're all seeking, Lord, what is the way? What is the way? Suddenly it begins to filter out. And the elders define it. It's not that they're always telling the church what is the mind of God. They should, in, in fact, be expressing what is in the heart of the church. Because the whole mind of God is in us all. We all know the Lord from the least to the eldest, to the least to the greatest. Now, if we're members of Christ and members one of another, well then, should we not submit ourselves one to another? Can one member act as if there are no other members? So, in a world growing, thus in a world of growing lawlessness and anarchy, greater and greater rebellion against all rule and authority. The church on earth is to be the sphere and the realm 
where the rule and authority of God is experienced and expressed. And when the world touches us, it shouldn't touch faction, disorder, unrest, rebellion, but should touch life, order, fulfillment. That's the whole thing about having good central authority, isn't it? Don't you think that? When there was no king in the land, everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. And what a terrible thing it is when central authority begins to break down and the whole country begins to break up. It's terrible. Why do we have authority? That we may be able to live. That we might be fulfilled. That's why the church needs to be a microcosm of the kingdom of God on earth. A little colony of heaven in which the reign and rule of God is experienced and expressed. I I do trust that somehow this gets into you all because that's why the Lord spoke of, when he spoke about building the church, giving us the keys of the kingdom. That's why it says in Psalm 110 that he will rule in the midst of his enemies. He will lift up the rod of his strength out of Zion. That, that's why we're called priests and kings. We're meant to rule here. And it's not only that we're to know in our midst the rule of God, but that through us the Lord Jesus could rule over nations, over the nation, our nation, and over the area in which we're found. It's not only just that we might know the rule of God amongst ourselves, it is that we become a vehicle by which... The Lord Jesus can rule over a a nation. We are to be the light of the world, exposing darkness and bringing in the mind of God for those who have a heart for him. We're supposed to be a city set up on a hill. What is a city? Place of administration. Set on a hill so that the world can see that's what it should be like. We're meant to be the salt of the earth, stopping corruption. This is what we're meant to be. We cannot be that unless the headship of Jesus Christ is known by every member. May the Lord help us then in this, I think, vital matter. We've talked about two very practical and vital matters. Do you want to come to the throne? Do you want to be part of that city? you want to reign with Christ in the ages to come, then there is a sphere of education here. There is a realm of discipline here. Uh, There is this school of training here. Not easy. But if we look to God, he will give us the grace and we shall be eternally thankful. Shall we pray? Now, Lord, we've really covered some ground tonight. But we've covered very important ground, Lord, and it's very easy for us to just listen and not really retain. Now, Lord, we commit it all back to Thee. By Thy Spirit, Lord, make this flesh and blood. Apply Thy Word to us, Lord. In this whole matter of of really 
being built together in this area of Richmond upon Thames, help us, Lord, we pray. And Lord, we pray that uh, Thou wilt likewise help us in this whole tremendous and vital matter connected with Thy headship. Lord, may we all know Thee as Lord, not in word, but in practice. And we ask this together in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.